Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Max Hawthorne is returning tonight, and we'll be discussing his thought-provoking new book, Monsters and Marine Mysteries. Uh, you can learn more about him by going to his web, website, chronosrising.com. Max Hawthorne and Matt Hooper, same initials. Have you ever <laughs> seen them at different places at the same time? Could they be the same person? We can only be sure if Max never dated Mary Ellen Moffat. How are you, Max? I'm good. I'm just, you know, picturing myself as Richard Dreyfus and, and being led on me. <laughs> but anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Over the weekend, did you swim with any bow-legged women? Uh, not haven't had any bow-legged women around lately. You know, it's, uh, plus a man of my advanced years. You know, I mean, <laughs> you have to, you gotta pace yourself. You know, okay. I mean, like at my age, I get to go to IHOP now, and I get to eat off the senior menu. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and they look at me like I'm lying, and especially since okay, I'm right. getting my that rump back in shape and all. So I'm like, yeah, I'll take this combo here and all. They're like, we're going to need some ID. I'm like, seriously? Listen, girl, I got shots older than you, and I'm wearing a pair. You want to see them? You know? So anyway, it's all good. <laughs> okay. So, they are um, older than some of these, these kids these days. But. <clears throat> yeah, I, I have a few like that, too. Um, you know, We'll save that for another show, but uh, we better uh, get get started on your book before uh, the the censors start uh, getting a little antsy about pushing that button for the red flag. But um, mm. yeah, yeah, you uh, changed your writing approach 
from your uh, horror paleo fiction writing to mm-hmm. um, you know the more documented uh, accounts of marine anomalies for your latest publishing achievement. Um, what's the story behind that? Well, um, usually, like you're right, I do like uh, normally my genre is like sci-fi thrillers slash horror thrillers. Uh, but the Cronus Rising series, which I guess is what they, I mean, actually the hashtag Jaws meets Jurassic Park originated based on Cronus Rising back in like 2014 or something like that. But uh, the, those books are based on the notion of giant prehistoric marine predators being alive in the present in a believable manner and the impact they could have obviously on the ecosystem, uh, the, the ocean's ecosystem based on, you know, us having killed most of our sharks and whales, et cetera. Um, but over the course of writing those books, I end up doing immense research on a variety of uh, marine organisms. And over the course of doing that, I started to uncover research or evidence and reports on assorted marine animals that are unidentified or uh, sometimes misinterpreted mm-hmm. or are look like there's something extinct out there that, you know, like something, something out there that I'm sorry, that's supposed to be extinct and it, it's not. Okay. And I started interviewing people that I encountered who had had eyewitness reports. They would sometimes they would reach out to me because they thought nobody else would take them seriously or they, or they were tired of getting laughed at. And, stuff. and I also, I got on this point where I had done an assortment of blog posts on the topic. And then I thought, well, I can actually do a whole book on this because it's of interest to me and obviously the readers. And then I started collecting data including I got, I was privileged to interview some fantastic people, eyewitnesses that saw some of these immense, sometimes incredibly large and incredibly dangerous creatures up close and personal. And I mean, some of these people, nobody even knows they're still alive because these sightings took place in the seventies. And and you do have photos as well. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I collected a plethora of evidence, um, everything from, um, images, drawings from eyewitnesses, photographs, if anything was available, charts. Uh, I put stuff in the book. I, I wanted to give everybody as much data as possible, links to all the reference material. Uh, we've got photos in there. Like, for example, mega sharks are obviously of ongoing interest to people. And I uncovered evidence of an assortment of enormous macro-predatory sharks out there. And this is all like in recent years, in the last, whatever, 5, 10, 15 years, something like that. And these range in size from sharks are at a minimum of 25 plus feet and possibly as much as 40 feet in length, which doesn't jive with known maximum sizes, for example, for Kakaridon. Kakaridon is the great white shark. Um, but there's photos in the book there of a, a peer of mine who found a humpback whale carcass and measured it. He handles uh, whale watching and stuff for his island and Briar Island, to be exact. Hence, the thing was called the Beast of Briar Island. And that humpback had been fed on by an assortment of sharks, including white sharks and possibly a hammerhead. I mean, I'm sorry, a hammerhead, a, a tiger. Um, all the photos of all the bite marks and stuff were in there and the carcass. And there were several bites on there that were picture-perfect great white shark bites, but they were gigantic. And I mean gigantic. Um, mm-hmm. One of the bites was about 27 inches wide and 31 inches high. And then it was another bite 
right next to it or under it that was the same width but was even higher, approximately 39 inches, which, of course, indicated that the shark on one bite did not have to open its mouth as wide before it got a grip. See, so it's, it had a maximum gait of 39 inches. And going by, uh, I did like went into all the different formulas that are out there for estimating shark size based on bite gait, et cetera. And some of them came up in insane numbers. I, I, I couldn't go with those. I wanted to be as conservative as possible. But even going with the most reasonable or, or the smallest estimates possible, that animal still measured close to 26 feet in length and possibly over 30, to be fair, okay, with some of the formulas that are out there. And these are from a lasmo branchologist, shark researchers, okay, and marine biologists. But at least 25 or 26 feet, and that is an enormous shark. I mean, we're talking something that probably weighs like five, six tons off the top of my head. You know, the size of like the uh, bigger than Bruce the shark from Jaws, closer to the mm -hmm. one in Jaws too, let's say. And that was the smallest of the sharks that I researched, and they went up from there, bigger, 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 bigger. I mean, the the biggest one is uh, the one, the Galapagos giant, and that was based on photos taken by a marine biologist of the underwater of a 40-foot whale shark off the Galapagos Islands. And that whale shark had been attacked by a gigantic shark of some kind. And it had a bite on its total keel towards the back, like a third of the whale shark, where the, the predator had attacked it, trying to cripple it. It crunched down on that, and it tried to bite through that region so that it could cripple the whale shark, eliminating its means of propulsion. If you destroy a shark's tail, especially at the, the part where the, the, all the muscles are, the shark cannot swim. Then it will sink, drown, die, etc. Easy prey. Okay. Also, you avoid retaliation if you're, you know, you, the victim has teeth, etc. That's why gray whites, when they go after an elephant's heel, which is the same size as them, let's say, they always grab it by the haunches and they crunch down, ah, do the bite and spit thing. You know, they don't want that elephant seal to turn around and rip open their face. They could lose an eye, you know, or even worse. It's a dangerous game. So they do that, then they swim away, and they wait for it to bleed out. And this predator probably attempted the same thing, except that with its jaws were four feet across. And that's based on the notion that that scar tissue that's there shows that, in my opinion, that bite is not that old, like a year, year and a half at most, probably less. Mm -hmm. Okay? And... Um, I have links in there to my site where it shows how a whale shark's bite has healed over a period of like 16 months. And the difference is night and day between the bite in the book on this giant shark and the one healed. You could see like the, the, this 40-foot whale shark, there are still tooth grooves in that wound, like the actual individual teeth, tooth rakes as the predator bit down. And the only reason the whale shark wasn't killed is because the predator, which had to be about the size of it, so we're talking a 40-foot shark, it, when it crunched down that caudal keel there, that is what I call like a, like a crumple zone on whale sharks. It's the enormously thick, like area of fibrous tissue and skin, which on a shark that size, I think some one of the researchers told me it could have been a foot thick. And you have all this thick, gristly tissue that is supporting the whale's tail, whale shark, I'm sorry, but also it's like a barrier. And so when a predator went and grabbed it and crunched down, it didn't get to tear out all the muscles and stuff that the shark swims with. It only got like calluses, we'll almost call it, or something like that, which probably didn't taste very well either. And either it let go at this point, spat that out and said, okay, this isn't really tasty, or maybe the whale shark gave it a 
really hard smack in the head with its own total keel, you know, with its tail, and dissuaded it, whatnot. But, you know, obviously the whale shark survived because swimming around with a four-foot bite taken out of it. So, you know, it was just fascinating stuff. And I was able to put all this together into this book and show people that there's a lot out there that people aren't seeing that, that it hasn't really made the mainstream or that people are just so conservative they don't want to say this is what could this could be. You know, I have no such compunctions. I'm putting the evidence out there and I'm letting people judge for themselves. Okay. Um, you were saying, you know, people might not be seeing some things. And I think as many times as you've been on night lights, you know, people are expecting uh, stories of mosasaurs and megalodons, but you know, you, you, know, you throw some curveballs at us um, approach, and early on in the book, um, you give us. Uh, a more interesting animal to uh, fish, mammal uh, to think about, mm-hmm. and it it shows up uh, later in the your your book as well. Um, you know, maybe we ought to uh, talk a little bit about uh, Gary. Lamada's mm-hmm. um, observations of uh, the giant a turtle creature. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. uh, uh, yeah let's, let's get into that. Uh, that's something that's uh, new material for the listeners. I thought you made a compelling case. Thank you. I mean, there are people out there that will claim that, oh, the stills are watching the footage that Gary shot way back in 1969, that that's not compelling or some some nonsense like that. Um, And yes, the original footage is very grainy and dark. Uh, I mean, it's from a Super 8 camera that had been seen and watched hundreds of times and left in boxes in an attic or whatever and whatnot, and it got dark over time. But I was able to take um, stills from that footage and just enhance them with a simple you know, Windows program where you click enhance photo and then play around with the lighting and stuff until I lightened it up enough that I was able to see what was actually there. And it, even though you'll never get something that's crystal clear or crisp, it's unmistakably the head of a gigantic sea turtle of some kind. And based on Gary's description, obviously a new or undocumented species. Um, mm-hmm. This is just, uh, you know, what happened. But um, I, I have to pull up my notes to get an exact details, but I'm going to try and remember off the top of my head. Keep in mind, I'm, even though I battle incessantly, I'm not a computer, so my memory is not flawless, shall we say. But uh, in 1969, I, the date escapes me at the top of my head, but um, Gary Lamata, who was a fisherman, off of uh, fishing near Vancouver Island, uh, he and a friend of his took their boats out to go fishing for salmon. It's up there getting salmon runs. And 
It was very early in the morning. It was a beautiful day. It was flat, calm out. And uh, Gary was ahead of his friend Earl, who was, I think he said about a mile behind him or something like that. I got to interview Earl. Gary had passed away years ago, but Earl, thankfully, is still with us. And um, Earl explained to me that there were some erroneous uh, statements or evidence in some of the previous cryptozoological society reports and stuff. People uh, got the impression that Earl was with Gary and that he worked for him and that sort of thing. And that was definitely not true. They had two separate boats. I got the names of the boats, the size of the boats, the models, all of that jazz. And um, the size of the boat was relative because Earl told me that the animal was as big as their boats. And they had a, a 38 foot boat as reference. So that was quite compelling too. Not to mention if you're a you know, fisherman and you're out on the water all the time, you learn how big boats are over time, inevitably. You can look at a boat and say, oh, that's a 16-footer. You know, that one, that's a 20-foot boat. You know, that's a 28-foot boat, whatever. You, you, you'll be pretty close or spot on even, depending on how experienced you are, because you can tell looking at a boat. And when you're looking at a giant marine turtle and you have your boat right under you, obviously, it makes it even easier. But uh, so the images that I pulled up show that Gary's old truth. And what happened is, apparently, an Earl back this up is that Gary, um, and luckily for us, was a real fanatic with his trusty Super 8 camera, which back in 1969, I guess you'd say, was the iPhone of its day, you know? Mm-hmm. And so Gary um, was obsessively filming, you know, all sorts of stuff. You know how it is when you first get your, your first 35 millimeter camera or whatever it might be or your first camcorder back in a day or whatever. And you're constantly like, you know, playing around, taking family videos and shots of your dog. Mm-hmm. And you see in social media, people always posting you know, home clips, et cetera. So Gary was doing the same type of thing. And he got out there and then he started radioing Earl on his walkie talkie saying, get out of here quick, hurry up. There's a sea monster. And he's like, and Earl's laughing. He goes, I'm, I'm serious. He goes, get out here now, hurry up. So Earl, you know, puts it in the gear and he's, he catches up to him and Gary has been like, like drifting at this point, meaning not anchored up and not underway. And uh, the animal, which Gary filmed and described it as being on the surface and it had its head and neck sticking up out of the water. And when you see the images that I was able to enhance, you could see it has turned and it's looking at him, which of course in retrospect, some of the other stuff I researched is a little unnerving since this animal was definitely big enough to consume a grown man. I mean, just the head and neck was eight feet long. But, uh, and then Earl said that That's when huge. he got there, yeah, the, the animal had submerged. And under them, uh, there was a rock ledge. Uh, I forget how deep the water was in there. I'm, all the time I had, I'm going to say like maybe 60 feet or something like that. But this rock outcropping came up from the seafloor and it came up and reduced that depth by, I think, half or something like that. So it was fairly shallow it, under them. And the it, animal... It went from 10 to 12 fathoms to six, 6 to 8 fathoms. Okay, so that's even better. Thank you, because I don't have it in front of me right now. So 10 or 12 fathoms would be 60 to 72 feet, a fathom to 6 feet. Okay? So then you said 10 to 12 to 6 to what? 6 to 8? 6 to 8. Right? It's on page 40. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't have the, the book in front of me. So maybe 36 to 45 or 50 feet, something like that. And... They had their boats a few little few yards apart, and they're looking down, and this thing is just sitting there on the ledge. 
which is common behavior. If you've ever seen footage of sea turtles when they're not swimming, often they'll go down to the sea floor. They'll sit there. I've watched them while swimming with them in Hawaii, for example, and they'll clean their faces like a cat does with their flippers. It's, it's quite interesting to see because they literally, they look like a cat when they're doing it, the same technique. Um, but they'll, uh, sometimes they take naps on the bottom for six, seven, eight hours because they can absorb some water, I mean, oxygen through their skin. So this animal was sitting there on the ledge. I don't know what it was doing. It could have been finishing something it caught and eating it or just chilling out or wondering why there was these two boats hovering directly above it and what. But, uh, and Earl said that at first when he looked at it, he thought it was an impossibly large sea lion. It was a pale color, like really light, light gray, almost whitish. And it had this streamlined look to it. And Gary had described it as being a gigantic shellless turtle capable of terrific speed, as he put it. Okay. And then the animal eventually moved off and it took off very quickly underwater and it was gone. But when you see the footage, you could definitely see first, this is not some strange 40 foot long sea lion. You know, the head, the neck, the beak is unmistakable and the eyes and the brow ridges that are definitely some sort of giant turtle which matches Gary's drawing that he did, which matches his description, et cetera. So it appears, and, and since there was a, a lot of salmon going running through the area at the time, unless it was there to give birth, I would assume that the creature was feeding on the, all the fish that were around there and, you know, just got tired of or, or paranoid about boats being above it, and it just got out of dodge. One... And just and just to make sure the audience knows that we're talking about something really different is you said that this may have been some kind of shellless turtle. Well, think of a leatherback, leatherback sea turtle. They have like a soft okay. shell. Okay, it's like a thick, firm, leathery type of shell with like ridges in there. It has some. Sort of bone, some bone supports under it, struts, we'll call it, whatever. But it doesn't have a formal hard shell like um, a green turtle or a loggerhead or something like that. Okay? Um, leatherbacks are very fast. They're the fastest known marine reptile. They could swim it up to 22 miles an hour. And they are also champion deep divers. They can, they've been uh, documented at exceeding 5,000 feet, and they can hold their breath for sometimes two hours, I think it is. Again, um, I don't have all the data in front of me, but uh, they're also champions in terms of thermal regulation. They can keep a sustained body temperature of 32 degrees higher than the surrounding water, which is astonishing. Um, and they do this through a combination of activity levels because they're almost always swimming, and they have uh, brown adipose tissue and circulatory system that's powered by their flipper movements, et cetera, sort of like countercurrent heat exchange, we'll call it. Um, so they're amazing animals, but the, the, they feed on primarily jellyfish, okay? So their speed, et cetera, is probably more a defensive thing because they have to worry about sharks attacking them at times, which does happen. Leatherbacks are big, but there are bigger sharks out there. They're also these turtles of leatherbacks are very aggressive. There's a document incident of one attacking a boat that was filming it. And another one of one chasing off a shark that was like looking at it and thinking about trying to make a move on it. So they're not far from harmless, shall we say. But what Gary saw was a little slimmer. He described his body as being six feet across. 
So that sounds more like a pinniped in terms of a body build than a leatherback, which is still broader. So if this creature did evolve, and I found like a, in the fossil record, an animal that could possibly have been its ancestor, but uh, it may have evolved as a predator, meaning a piscivore. It's, uh, you know, feeds on fish, let's say. And being large like that, I mean, it could eat lions, mane, jellyfish and stuff, which are very large. But there are uh, some sea turtles that are like the loggerhead, for example, that are more omnivores. They'll feed on fish, small sharks, crustaceans, lobsters, things like that, as well as uh, jellyfish sometimes, and even seaweed, marine plants. Mm-hmm. But uh, so it just seems to loan itself to the fact that the, the possibility of that there is a large predatory turtle out there. Hmm. So, okay. Oh, the turtle photos you have mm-hmm. in your book on page pages forty six and forty seven. Um, this is in Monsters and Marine Mysteries, correct? Uh, that is correct. Okay. They look really cute. <laughs> now, I, um, I, I it, it's, you know, really interesting that. You know, these turtles, uh, you know, this one story of the turtle, mm-hmm. um, Gary and Earl uh, are saying it's maybe 38 feet long, 8 foot yeah. neck. I, yeah, I, I, head I, neck this is eight, huge. 8 feet long. Yes. It's a very yeah, big I, animal. I, I, yeah, 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 uh, you know, this is, you know, monstrous proportions for a turtle. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a, a very, um, let's see, welcoming face in your book. Yeah. You're just, you know, Kind of like cute and little. Um, it, you know, it, I don't think people. It, okay, if this is a um, leatherback turtle, mm-hmm. um, See, it, I don't believe there a leatherback. Be, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Well, it, 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 it sounds like you've been able to rule out, uh, you know, some seals, uh, you know, some of these other animals uh, that could be a candidate for what uh, Gary and Earl saw. Is is there is the leatherback turtle the best explanation? For this animal that they saw, um, in terms of its appearance, there really is nothing out there that matches it. Because when you see the animal's head, the head is not like that of a leatherback. It's 
hmm. more like a, almost like a green turtle's head a bit or something. The leatherback's beak is designed differently than this animal's beak is. It has like it looks more like a lawyer head or, or a green turtle, something like that. Um, it uh, except of course for the size and then it's a lot slimmer. Which and Gary Descrolls again described it as being capable of quote terrific speed. I mean when it took off it just and it was out of there. And these animals are very graceful underwater. I mean if you ever swam with mm-hmm. turtles like I have, when they decide they want to get out of dodge, they just accelerate and it's it's a marvel to see. They're and they're only using their four flippers. It's not like a plesiosaur that where they would have four flippers to propel them, which would have been then even quicker. So but they're they're fast, they're nimble, they're agile. Uh, the thing he described it as frolicking on the surface, playing, et cetera, and all that. And uh, eventually, though, like I said, it got bored and they were nervous and it left. But uh, and to me, it seems like this turtle, like a while back when the whole super predator scare, whatever you want to call it, came around. And there were multiple documentaries on the super predator, and which is all discussed in Monster Marine Mysteries. Uh, I, I encourage people, if you're going to get the book, I mean, either way, the, the physical book or the Kindle book is, is fine. But the Kindle book does have some advantages because when you have it, you can click on all the links right there and pull mm-hmm. up any of the reference materials, websites, you know, the scientific data, et cetera, to go along with that. I think you can probably also enlarge images and things of that nature. But, you know, it's a... Uh, you, you want to have access to, to, the, to the information, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But I don't think that the leatherback corresponds to this animal. It's a specialist. You know, it's designed more or less to eat jellyfish. Its throat is lined with those backward pointing, pointing papillae that look like teeth. So it's a one-way ticket for something slippery. And you know a jellyfish is going to be really slippery. It's like eating jello. Well, it's not that I've ever eaten a jellyfish, but, you know, I, I can imagine. But mm-hmm. um, but it does, the leatherback does have a lot of features that would suggest that it could be a candidate for the super predator if it was much bigger and was capable of eating a nine-foot shark. See? I mean, the speed is there. The diving ability is there. Shark alpha, that's what they called the animal, the shark that was killed at the Bremer Canyon years ago, Australia, um, mm-hmm. was chased down into the dark and captured by its attacker about 2,000 or almost 2,000 feet down. So that implies something that's fast, big, and can go to tremendous depths, which we know the leatherback can. Then there was the body temperature, the differential there. And that's another thing that struck me as, you know, suggesting that a leatherback was a super predator. Um, And that was that, like a, a white shark, for example, like, you know, one of the attempts to you know, I don't want to say quell the panic, but to, you know, solve the mystery was to claim that in the first documentary, oh, it was just a slightly larger white shark that killed an eight, you know, shark alpha. So instead of it, she's 10 feet long and a 16-footer killed her an eighter. And I thought that was kind of a cop-out because, number one, a 16-footer would have a very hard time catching a 10-footer because the 10-footer would be faster and more maneuverable, you know. So that didn't make sense. And then there's the body temperature differential. Well, first of all, the size. You know, a 16-foot shark cannot eat a 10-foot shark. They could kill it, eat parts of it. So you could say, oh, it ate the dorsal fin and then swallowed the track or whatever. But that, then there was all the other aspects. There was body temperature, okay? The uh, super predator 
had a sustained body temperature of, I think it was 78 degrees, and the water was 46 degrees. A maximum temperature differential, which I put in the book, that a white shark was able to sustain, is able to sustain five degrees higher than the ambient temperature of the surrounding seawater, which means it could not, in 46 degree water, have a body temperature of 78 degrees. However, the leatherback, and that there's a scientific paper that I referenced in there, has done that. Exact, that exact range, in fact. So that 32 degree differential is capable of having and sustaining. See? So if you think about it now, that, that once again says, no, no, it wasn't a bigger shark. It was a leatherback turtle, which still doesn't make any sense. Okay. Then there was the, the respiration aspect of it. Okay. If the super predator was a, um, a bigger great white or a megalodon, okay, let's say, which would never be able to catch a fast moving type of white shark, okay, et cetera. But the tracker showed that the predator that consumed shark alpha after it fed came back up to the surface and loitered over the next eight days between the surface and a depth of approximately 300 feet. So this is the exact same behavior pretty much that an orca does. You know, orcas don't dive deep, okay? They typically stay in that range there. And this animal was acting like a killer whale, except we know it wasn't a killer whale because it had a body temperature of 70 degrees and an orca's temperature is like yours or mine, around 98, okay? So whatever it was, then that strongly suggests that it was an air breather and that it was behaving like an air breather. It would need to surface and come down and surface come down. It also showed that it was, um, it had a, a very long digestive system. And I believe I covered this in there as well. A white shark typically takes like, I think, 24 to 48 hours to digest a meal, something to that effect. And there's a maximum range in there where it completely empties its entire digestive system. I think it was a little over three days. But the super predator took eight full days to digest shark alpha. And it wasn't feeding after eight. The reason why it just kept hanging out there because it had a full belly. If you just ate a thousand pound shark, you know, you're pretty well fed. Maybe even a little more than a thousand. I have to crunch that. But anyway, um, so, you know, it had a large meal. It took it eight days to digest it. Then it excreted the, what remained, including the tag, which eventually washed ashore. Okay, so all of this now, if we look at the leatherback sea turtle, its digestive system is, I believe, if memory serves, is six times longer than other sea turtle species. You know, like a green turtle or a loggerhead or a mm-hmm. or whatever. So if this was a leatherback that ate shark alpha, it would explain how long it took to digest her, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all the evidence points to a turtle, except that we can't have a turtle. A leatherback is not as big as a 10-foot white shark, and it might be as heavy or heavier, but it certainly couldn't kill one, most likely. It could maybe drive one off, and it certainly couldn't eat it. And the odds are, in fact, it would be the white shark attacking the leatherback, not the reverse. See? And so, once again, it seems to suggest a turtle. Oh, and one other thing I forgot. There was also in there, you saw, like, this animal, whatever it was that killed the great white, it made multiple attempts to get her over a period of, I think it was a week or two or something like that, because you saw periodically that Shark Alpha did these tremendous deep dives and then came back. And that says to me that that parallels the behavior that white sharks are known to use when they're one of their kind, one of their number is killed by orcas. This has been shown on the Farallon Islands. Orcas killed a great white there. Every white shark in the area got out of dodge. And one that had a tracking tag showed that as soon as that happened, 
they somehow sensed the death of another white shark from their natural predator. It dove to 1,500 feet and it swam all the way to Hawaii and stayed there for the rest of the season. Okay, so they fear orcas that much that so they do that. And that deep dive protects them because the orcas can't dive that deep to go after them, track them down, hunt them, and kill them. But whatever did this was able to. So Alpha, when it saw something coming after her like that, it probably figured this is an air breeder. I'm going to try and use the same technique. My instincts tell me will help me escape killer whales. It dove. It worked several times. But the turtle eventually, assuming it was the same animal, okay, you know, either figured out her ploy or managed to, like, cut her off at the pass or who knows what, okay? But something obviously fatal took place thousands of feet down in the dark, okay? So you put all that together once again. Everything seems to suggest a leatherback, but we know a leatherback's not possible. But then I come across Gary LaMotta's sighting and this footage that shows basically, in my opinion, after enhancing frames, that it was an immense turtle, that we now have a turtle in the size range that is capable of chasing down, dispatching, and consuming a nine or 10 foot great white shark. You know, just connecting the dots. All the evidence is there, and there's nothing out there that's been found that matches every single aspect of this. See, it all points towards some sort of turtle. Gary saw the turtle, filmed the turtle, et cetera. You know, there must, this must be a known species. And based on that, then you'll see, obviously you read the book, there are sections in Monster and, and Marine Mysteries where I covered other sightings of gigantic sea turtles that have taken place, some going back 100 or 200 years. And there's a bunch of them. And they go all the way to the present. In fact, after I finished the book and it had been published, somebody approached me and told me that he and his father had seen, I think it was like 20 years ago or something like that, in Pensacola, Florida, had saw a turtle that matched that size and description off of a pier. And it stole a small shark from a man that was fishing, took it, ran off, bit through his fishing line, and took off. But he saw the head, the neck, and part of the shell, et cetera, and it, it was immense. But uh, so it seems like, based on all this evidence you put together, that there seems to be this gigantic species of carnivorous, piscivorous turtle out there. Intriguing. I even, I, I slapped a scientific name on it, Titanicellus flamati which is named after Gary LaMotta, who filmed it, which would be, uh, you know, LaMotta's Titanic turtle, basically. That was one of the just really interesting aspects of your book. Uh, Just kind of getting something the audience wasn't expecting Mm -hmm. in, in there. And... You know, every once in a while, I, you know, I just uh, went a couple times over nearly 20 years I've been in this house. Um, yeah, tur- find a turtle uh, along the uh, stream bank. You know, it's, you, know, uh, I, I, you know, where the ones would be in our area and they have like little yellow... Uh, patches on their shell. Wait, say that again? I'm sorry. Uh, uh, What type of turtle uh, would have the little yellow um, 
you know, spots on their uh, shell. Is this a sea uh, turtle? No, no. It, you know, it's just one that just, uh, I don't know where, where it came from. Just, is I it, assume is it on land, stream. like a tortoise looking? Like, or yeah, is it a, yeah. it's in water? Well, it's... In, I don't know. Like in a pond, yeah, probably, a lake? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it could be a, a, a painted turtle. It could be a slider, red-eared slider, a terrapin. I mean, okay. I'd have to, you know, see more than that. I mean, okay. I, as, a, uh, as a kid, it, I had oodles of, of turtles. You know, I had a pool, okay. a swimming pool of turtles, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, I don't know, maybe um, eight inches or so across the shell. I, yeah, they're just... Uh, you know, neat little animals, and you know, just kind of move them off the yards. You know, when I'm cutting the grass, and, um, and it's kind of make their way down uh, a stream and find another place to stand along the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there when you encounter. You know, small, small animals like that. Yeah, it's you know, a, a, a fun experience. But mm-hmm. you know, uh, the the ones you discuss in your book are uh, just so much. Uh, you, you have a lot of detail in there about you know, like uh, the uh, diving. What they they can swim at twenty two miles per hour. Uh, you, know, you go into so much more detail about their saltwater cousins, and it, it, you know we aren't really expecting to encounter so many, you know, like yeah, you know, your monster, you know, one of your monsters for this book is a turtle. Mm-hmm. I always like, I like that, but um. In you know one I don't know one one of your appearances on Nightlight, you, know, you covered the Carnival Cruise Ship Monster, mm-hmm. and you know that's in your book as what well, you know the monsters and marine mysteries. But um, mm-hmm. with you know setting like uh, in 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 the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have a lot of uh, people out on boats, or you know, thousands of people uh, you know, who, who could probably look over the deck and see uh, something huge swimming next to it. Um, you, know, you expect Blackbeard and you know, more pirates in the. Who, who were uh, traveling to Jamaica and Aruba, the Caribbean. Uh, but in, in this book, you, you, uh, you do have a, a lot of uh, documentation that, uh, okay, there are you know, the warmer water type uh, sea monsters, but in quite a few examples, 
you have um, these high northern latitudes like the Bay of Fundy, um, the uh, Lamada's turtle was uh, off the uh, Vancouver Island. Do the are there more? Um, you have Nor- Norway as uh, well with the orcas. You know, we can get into that in a little bit. But do, do uh, um, even though there might be less people on boats in some of these. Uh, uh, Isolated fishing communities along you know, the Newfoundland coast, or something. Um, or have there been more of these uh, sea monsters recorded in the high latitudes, or is it pretty much equal to? You know, uh, what's been documented in the South, uh, you know, you know, pretty equal. I, I don't know, is the Gulf Stream washing more of the these anomalous beings up onto the coast of Canada? I, it, it, you know, I was just trying to get to, uh, or, is there anything about the latitudes uh, uh Cooler versus warm water that uh, I attracts some sightings. Uh, I, I guess you're saying um, the sightings vary. Uh, it seems like uh, some of the sightings that people had that would be more like say, uh, some sort of like marine crocodile or quote mosasaur mm-hmm. type creature t- tend to historically be in more warmer waters, like around New Zealand, okay. um, the Gulf of Mexico, which was in late summer, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. You get more. Uh, Huge cephalopods, well, they range all over, but those further up north in colder climates, they can handle colder water. Uh, sea turtles can pretty much go where they want. I mean, the sea turtle thing, I mean, the historical sightings are intriguing. Going back, and I got all the like the witness statements or police reports from going back hundreds of years, some of them, 1800s and such. It really seems to be the same animal. Not the same exact animal, I mean, but the same species, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh I gotta stop saying you know. People tell me that. You know, you keep saying this all the time. You know, I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. Who knows? You know, if you don't know, who knows? But anyway, so um, at least we have yeah. the. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, I. I, Less, I, 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 was, I you know, pro, what uh, Nessie would probably be the most famous sea monster. Um, oh, he. Is also um, he was started to be what cited in like the fifth, sixth century mm-hmm. by a reputable yeah. saint, and yeah, he, yeah and, and but, you know what? We should talk about that fighting actually, it, because it, that it, fighting. It, it's oh, actually I'm sorry. yeah, it, it, but but it is a subarctic environment. Mm-hmm. And it also I, dates I, back I, I, and leads to the last 10,000 years or something like that from the last ice age, which was when the lock was formed. The thing is that the argument being, of course, that what, I mean, some marine creatures do have access to the lock, however. So 
you know, we talk about all this stuff in recent times, sightings and things of the lot, for example. Um, you know, they made this big thing recently and stuff um, about eels being in the lock. And, oh, the Loch Ness Monster is a giant eel. It's some sort of a, a eel that um, is like a, a eunuch. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so it hasn't made him go back to the sea, so it's just stayed there and gotten really, really big. Okay? And that's balderdash. That's just like an attempt to promote work, somebody's books, movies, who knows what. Okay? I, 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 I like look at this and I laugh. First of all, the DNA test that they took there, okay, 20% of the DNA was not even valid. They couldn't even tell what it was. That's the first thing, okay, which, of course, I find interesting, but whatever. And then on top of that, you have, like, things that don't show up on the DNA tests but are known to be in the lot. Species of duck. These ducks are there. Why are they not on the DNA test? Seals are known to frequent the lock. They swim in from the outside. You know, they do their thing, they leave. There's no sealed DNA or anything like that. I believe that most Loch Ness sightings are the result of Wells catfish. And I'm not the first person that's put this theory out there or anything, okay? Wells are very serpentine in appearance, long, eel-like, if you want to call it that, et cetera. And that whole thing with the saint where this, you know, creature, like, you know, rushed the people, whatever, and stuff, and then he, like, chased it away with the power of the divine or whatever you want to call it. But Wells catfish aggressively defend their nesting sites. So there have been, Jeremy Wade showed this on a show where these girls have been swimming and something grabbed the girl by the leg and pulled her under. And she had like bruising and stuff on her leg, et cetera. And Wells have large mouths, pretty powerful jaws. They don't have sharp teeth, but they have those catfish like sandpapery teeth, et cetera. And if you come near their nesting site where they have their eggs, they will attempt to scare you, chase you away. They will bite. And an eight, nine-foot catfish trying to bite you would probably be a little disconcerting to me. You know? So, I mean, this thing with the saint was probably a wells concerned about its nest. You know, they're not familiar with this thing. And it's trying to, like, you know, chase the people away. Victorians were famous for stocking wells all over Europe. They're all over parts of Asia, et cetera. They're, they're, they have them in Chernobyl. And despite the radiation, they're fine and huge. I mean, there are some reports of Wells Cavish getting to be 15 or 16 feet long. It's a big animal. So, and they have access, the ability to access the lock from the outside, to pass through, to go in there, to feed when there are spawning going on and things like that for the, uh, the trout and the stuff they feed on. You know, so it makes perfect sense for Wells to travel through that area. You might even have a few hanging out in the lock. And they're not being seen often because during the day, they tend to nest. They find, like, full-on timber, structure like that, and they just mesh in with it, and they stay there. And there are tons of videos and footage of them just, you know, kind of vegging out in fallen trees and stuff. So if your sonar is going along and you pass over a well that's in a tree, you ain't going to see the, the catfish. All you're going to see is a tree, basically. You know, this long thing that's resting in there is just going to look like part of it. You know, but nighttime comes, they go out, they start prowling around. But if you have wells that are not living there, and yes, they can't spawn in the lock, but they don't need to spawn in the lock. They just need to go there to eat and be seen by people, you know? So, that, I mean, even the fact that the notion of like, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the hump thing, et cetera. You could have multiple wells catfish there. You know, males chasing females, trying to spawn and stuff like that and create that thing. Although they have dismissed those humps as boat wakes at this point, you know, but 
a lot of the sightings, in my opinion, in Loch Ness suggest the wells. And this isn't discussed in the book. I'm just telling you this. This is my personal opinion. You know, I put this on social media, got attacked by people and all that. You know, oh, giant eel, giant eel. Yeah, right. Okay, sure. Show me an eel, you know, uh, like that's ever been caught of any kind of immense size, eunuch eel or otherwise. I don't care what this, you know, how this eel identifies or what it identifies as. Okay, it's not going to be 30, 40, 50, 60 feet long, whatever, et cetera. So. Okay. Next question. Okay. Well, you were towards the beginning of the show. You mentioned um, how you, your uh, paleo fiction books deal with the uh, dinosaurs working within the ecosystem mm-hmm. um, it, n- not all of monsters in marine mysteries deals with um, uh, o- ocean creatures you know, y- you do uh, cover uh, ponds you know, I think you uh, last time you were with us, um, you covered your um, bathing juvenile Bigfoot pond. Um, oh, that was the weirdest day. <laughs> yeah, but you, uh, yeah. I just want to touch on uh, the, the uh, snakehead uh, fish. And, you know, throughout the book, uh, people should get a um, sense of your um, environmental awareness and uh, like a certain uh, family amusement park type setting with uh, fish. Mm-hmm. To so, did you, you want me? To, did you want me to talk about like that ape-like creature that I saw in, in the lake? Well, or... uh, 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 how about if we just start with the, the snakehead and mm. your concerns about environmental eco systems? Um, Maybe a lot of people aren't aware of them, and I I thought you brought up some good points about the, the snakehead. Then then you get into the Bigfoot bathing Bigfoot thing that you saw. Mm-hmm. Well, the snakehead incident is based on a, a fishing trip I took with my dad years back in a uh, a lake in New Jersey, and we were. Uh, when we brought the boat back to the dock there, I found a large American shad, which are in the lake, um, floating dead on the surface. And uh, it's like a 16-inch shad. Um, and I, I scooped it up with a net and we sat it on the dock and all, and I was looking at it, measuring it and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, it had a gigantic bite taken out of it. 
You want to say a bite, I'm talking a bite, like about five inches across or something like that. And it was definitely a bite. It had like tooth notch marks, which you can see in the photo. So, and so something had slammed into this shad, taken a big belly out with a right like that, and just kept going. It didn't consume the whole shad. It was definitely large enough to swallow the whole shad because you could see the size of the, the gate, let's say. But uh, so I, I was always curious about what had done this. And the uh, as I started looking at different bite patterns and different you know, possible candidates, you, know, you go through the whole gamut of what could have done this. And it wasn't a person, obviously. I mean, the, all that. It wasn't a Bigfoot. You know, this is a, a you know developed area and all. Um, but uh, it had to be some sort of uh, aquatic predator of some kind. And they had teeth, because like I said, you could see the tooth notches. So a snapping turtle or an alligator snapping turtle was automatically out based on the fact that the size, the shape of the bite, and there was no beak mark or anything like that, uh, that type of thing. A snapper would have like had to tear at the turtle, I mean, I'm sorry, tear at the fish, like dig its claws in it and try to rip out a chunk, et cetera. And he, whatever it did, it could have swallowed his shad hole once again. But uh, it wasn't a turtle of any kind. It, uh, it had to be some sort of fish, it looked like. Um, and I considered potential candidates, you know, muscalunge and northern pike. Uh, none of those were a match. The tooth layout didn't match. The, the shape of the bill that they have on the ESOX, the, the muscle of the pike, they're, it's called a bill, the end of their, their snout, we'll call it. Um, that didn't match up. And it, whatever did this had the ability to shear through and take it a bite, you know, like, like Pac-Man, you know. But uh, – and one candidate I thought, a fish that I thought was, was most likely um, was a, a bowfin, which are common and sizable. You know, we've caught 12-pounders in the past, at least down south. But uh, it's, a, it's got a, a head that's sort of that shape, et cetera, but it just wasn't big enough. It's, the world record was nowhere near the size of what this, this animal was. And then I was looking at, like, talking to... Uh, researchers out there that specialize in the skulls of assorted marine animals and stuff. And I was able to talk to them and get some of their, you know, access to some of their stuff, you know, photos and things of that nature and, and of all the different, you know, like anything and everything. And I eventually stumbled on the, the, the thing that was a perfect match, which was a snakehead of some kind. And as you mentioned, um, and it had to be a giant snakehead, not the northern snakehead which of course is interesting um, in and of itself for other reasons. But uh, the, the head and the shape of the jaws, the, the notch where they met, the two halves of the, the maxwell mandible met, it was all there, the two shape positioning, et cetera. And then I was able to take that bite and take a, an actual photograph of the snake head and scale it up and match the jaw size to try and calculate the size of the, of the fish that had killed the shed. And uh, I came up with a snake head that is, a giant snakehead that's world record size. And so what I concluded was, and this has happened many times, we know this, this is how snakeheads first got into Washington, D.C.'s rivers and everywhere else, is that people had them in fish tanks. They were common. I remember in the late 80s living in Brooklyn, and I saw in the aquarium, the pet store I went to, they had three-footers, giant snakeheads, three feet long already, in tanks for sale. People were keeping them as pets. And, stuff. 
and people got tired of their pets and they released them into the wild thinking they were doing them a favor. And the snakehead survived and set up shop and they've often multiplied and they've become problems of epic proportions. And the snakehead is very dangerous in its environment because of the fact that it doesn't really have any natural enemies. When they get big, the only fish that could be safer from them or contend with them, let's say, would be a really large pike or a muscalunge or something like that. And even then, they might attack it. I've seen videos, films of them, and they'll go at a, a fish in a tank or several fish, and they'll hit it like, bam, and they'll bounce off of it like a ricochet. And as they bounce off, they tear out a bite, and then they'll hit the next fish, bam, and they take out a huge chunk of it and so forth. And they'll slaughter three, four fish in a tank, and there'll be line of twitching and bleeding out and stuff on it. And this thing doesn't eat the whole fish. Sometimes it comes back for more of it and bites another big piece out or half of it or something like that. But they're very destructive in terms of the predatory habits. They have very sharp teeth, very strong jaws, and most of our native fish are not able to defend themselves against these predators. So I concluded that this lake had one or more big snakehead running around in there that is like the apex predator of the lake. And uh, I went back then with my dad on another trip there, and I planned on trying to see if I could hook this thing or one of them, if there's more than one. And that was when we saw something that really blew my mind. Uh, we were, it, it's an electric only lake, like 90% of the lakes in that state are. So you're only allowed to use like your trolling motor to put, put around, okay? And mm -hmm. that's because these lakes are, are reservoirs. You know, it's drinking water. They don't want the gas and oil and stuff like that in, in the water. So uh, it was, you know, like getting near, I don't say near sundown, but the sun was starting to drop low. It had been a hot day. And we were down by this one end of the lake, and we saw uh, what initially I felt were two very, very large fish swimming in tandem, swimming together underwater. And they were like six feet apart, maybe a little more. And they were moving along, just staying together. Like it was weird, like they were doing a dance where they never left each other's sides, but they kept that distance between them. And it seemed like they were fish because you would see like the water, the turbulence that was churning up from them as they were moving through the water. In retrospect, I realized it wasn't uh, from a fish's body pushing through the water but something else, but I'll get to that in a second. And, you know, we started following these things. And I thought at first maybe it was a pair of huge carp, you know, like 40-pound, 50-pound carp swimming along together, but that didn't explain the distance. You know, the, those fish are more school-oriented. They tend to stick closer together. They don't, you know, have like a, they're not practicing safe social distancing, let's say. Six feet apart, you know, that type of thing, okay? <laughs> I know it's a terrible joke with the pandemic and stuff, but, you know, this is what we were seeing. And so we started following them. I was using the trolling motor, and I was going to try and get close enough that I was going to try and cast out and get a fishing lure or maybe toss a bait in front of them. You know, like maybe some sweet corn on a hook, which carp like, that type of thing. And I couldn't get close enough because each time I tried to catch up to them, they, the two fish would change direction and or accelerate. And they were quick when they wanted to be. I could not close the distance to get closer than I'd say, gosh, maybe I was like 30 feet away. You know, I don't think I ever got closer to 25 feet. But they just kept moving along. So my dad said to me at one point, he's like, Hey, Max, you ever think about the possibility that those are two parts of the same animal? 
And I was like, get out of here. And then I was like looking, I was like, hmm, like he had a point. You know, I mean, that would explain why they never left each other's side and why they changed. I mean, like when they changed direction, it wasn't like like the one, if they were turning left, the one on the left kind of cut left and the other one cut left and then the, the distance between them narrowed or whatever. It was like they curved together and the one on the outside seemed to go faster to keep up with it. So they were always, like there was a stick between them. You know what I'm saying? Like holding them apart and together. So when I was doing all my research on everything, I realized then what I think this was is that another popular pet that these aquariums were having at the time was the uh, giant freshwater stingray. And I saw them in that same pet store in Brooklyn that I'm talking about, by the way. And these stingrays, you know, they look real cute when they're in your aquarium when they're six inches that were foot across but they can exceed seven feet wingspan and weigh God knows how much. And you've probably seen Jeremy Wade slugging it out with one. He got hurt from it eventually. You know, they're they're using giant saltwater rigs that are designed for hammerhead sharks and stuff like that, or a mammoth grouper to try and hold these things Mm -hmm. up on the bottom, but they get gigantic. And so what I believe we we saw were the wings of the, uh, the stingray as it was swimming along. I think some, whoever released their, their snakeheads into that lake also put their giant stingray or stingrays in there too. And these things survive and they feed on the shad and everything else in there. They have a limitless food supply. They're the apex predators. Nothing's messing with them, you know, and they're not going to be fished for because if you ever snag one or fish hooked one, it's just going to swim away and spool you or snap your line like a spelling thread. And it will, you know, there's no stopping it. You just, you know, it's like trying to hold an elephant by you grabbing it by the tail. You know, if it doesn't turn around and step on you, it's just going to keep going and you're going to like hang there like an idiot and eventually get shaken off or something. So my point is, is that's what it looks like. And when I studied the, the stingray swimming, you can see the edges, the outer edges of their wings undulate. And that's how they propel. They propel. And that's the same type of water disturbance that I was seeing on the left and the right from what I thought were fish. See? Unfortunately, the water was muddy and, and all that. So, I, you know, this thing never came close enough to the surface that I think the water was probably eight or ten feet deep in that section, let's say. But if it was a, a, a giant freshwater stingray, and I'm pretty convinced it was, it was a big beast. I went back looking for it myself like a week or two later, and I had a bow and arrow with uh, the kind you use for fishing. And I figured I'm going to prove one way or another this is what I think it is, and I'm just going to shoot dead center between these two quote fish and if if it is that you know if i if the arrow will go deep enough and embed you know being for one hell of a man tuck a sleigh ride because i would have had to tie off that hundred pounds you know cable off to like my bow or something like that and just let it tow the boat around until hopefully it got tired although it might eventually just break the line and whatnot you know but uh so yeah i i you know i haven't been back there since then to be honest i didn't see it that that time that i went by myself, which is probably a good thing. But uh, it, it, if it's still alive, it's been a few years now, it's, it's huge. I mean, I think it weighs six, 700 pounds. And people laugh and say, impossible. The snakeheads are definitely there. So, I mean, it, it makes sense that from what we experienced that this stingray is in there too. Imagine catching that, making the news. That'd be like the largest fish ever caught in the lake in the United States. Well, okay. Well, uh, yeah, you're used to 
that kind of celebrity fishing status since you do hold world records? Well, I don't go on shows fishing and stuff like that. I do have a, an interesting clip from a few years back of me fighting an alligator on rod and reel. I should I should put that on the site because we were the last time I took the girls down to Florida. We were fishing in this uh, place called the Stick Marsh. Uh, a couple hundred pound gator came up, and we use we're using golden shiners for bait. It's like a eight ten inch long bait fish to catch large mouth. And uh, this nuisance alligator came up and just snagged, you know, grabbed one of the the, um, the shiners and got hooked. And I did not want to cut the line and uh, leave him with, you know, 100 feet of 50-pound Power Pro braided line, you know, hanging from his mouth, which could have gotten around his neck and killed him or something. So I was fighting the gator on rod and reel until, as expected, the hook popped out and, you know, he swam away. Um, but he was a pain in the butt, let me tell you. You have all kinds of uh, amazing stories. Well, you know, I'm just like a, a magnet for problems, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but you, you, with, with uh, uh, some of the examples that. Uh, other examples you have in your book about uh, the Bigfoot. Yeah, well, you do mention uh, Bigfoot and in ET. Couple, uh, couple, couple references about ET. Well, that was in relation but, um, to that giant sea creature that that they saw that was like attacking fishermen and stuff. I mean, the Bigfoot. The yeah, thing I saw in the lake was some okay. sort of anthropoid. So. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Do you want to uh, get get into other whatever you think aspects? your listeners want to hear? Okay, I think they heard the uh, Bigfoot story last mm-hmm. time when uh, you were a guest. Well, you don't want to do that, then. Right? We don't want. No, I don't but, want to be uh, repetitious. Um. You, 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 I was trying to find the draw. Um, it's the one where there are, um, like a great white going after a shark from above, and then you do have a couple samples of. Uh, the pygmy blue whale with a huge bite mark taken out of its back. And throughout the book, uh, Mm. you are basically profiling uh, killer fish. Mm. And... If we go back in time and look at evolution, you do have the um, Shawnosaurus skeleton Mm -hmm. photo from the Mm -hmm. Nevada State Museum. Um, What does the 
evolutionary record uh, tell us about how um, these sea creatures uh, go after their next meal? Has it changed over time? Uh, Are you talking about like a a shatosaurus, like an ichthyosaurus feeding apparatus? Okay. Yeah, so, so well, I like guess it depends on the... Yeah, it's like sometimes they're attacking from, from uh, above. That's why you have so, some of the bite marks, you know, the photos of bite marks taken out of the back of the tail. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so sometimes they're coming up from the... Uh, 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 underneath of the, their victim, like Alex Kintner, has... These fish behavior behaviors changed over time, or is it pretty much that you know this is the way it's uh, always been to get your next well, meal? Okay. Well, an ichthyosaur isn't a fish; it's um, a marine reptile, okay. like a dolphin, but reptilian, warm-blooded, um, based on evidence, uh, with a long proboscis, we'll call it, you know, elongated maxillary mandible very long to help them snatch fish, um, which is uh, interesting because um, the, and I, I well, I'm not going to go into all that, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's not a fish. Um, the, they ate fish and squids and ammonites and all sorts of stuff like that, and they probably came up behind their prey and were snapped it up with a quick snap to the left or the right, like anything else it draws like a, like a gharial will do, let's say, or false gharial with type of crocodilian. But um, like feeding strategies vary from animal to animal, species to species. Uh, one like um, that I investigated that had to do with plesiosaurs, for example, was that I developed a theory that a plesiosaur had the ones with the long necks, you know, like, quote, Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster, when she's not a Wells Catfish or a Neil and all that. But a, a plesiosaur, plesiosaur morph, the ones with the elongated necks, like Elasmosaurus, et cetera, uh, they have these ridiculously long necks. And then the question is, why? Now, what, what's the benefit of that? And my theory was that it wasn't to sneak up on prey, generally speaking, it was designed to offset or, or defeat the fish's lateral line. Fish have a sensory organ, sharks even have it, uh, that goes from their jaws pretty much to the back towards their, their tail, on one each side, and this lateral line lets them sense changes in water pressure around them. So they're able to detect the approach of something. And this is why when you see fish swimming along together in a school, they can do basically what's like murmuration in birds the whole school can change direction at the same time, and they're not crashing into one another. It's not, uh, you know, a, a million-car pileup, if you know what I'm saying. Does that make sense? Okay. Mm-hmm. But, right, right. The lateral line lets them do that. It lets them sense things in the dark, and they can sense approaching predators. They can also sense a large predator coming up behind them with their lateral line because of the displaced water. So I put out a theory about this, and we even tested the theory for plesiosaurs that 
their head was about the size of the upper scale of the fish that they would eat. So when a plesiosaur would come up behind a school of fish and its head and is, is like 20 feet ahead of its body, let's say, and the big body is way back there, the fish in that school aren't feeling the pressure buildup from the, that's put, you know, the water being displaced by the plesiosaur's body. They're only feeling the water being displaced by its face. And to them, it's sent, they, their senses pick it up as just another member of the school. So they're not alarmed. They don't change direction. They don't scatter, et cetera. So the plesiosaur is able to basically graze on fish. They can follow the school and just pluck the stragglers off the back of the school one by one, keep following the school, keep following the school, and eating and eating and eating until it's full. It's a perfect system if you think about it. The plesiosaur gets unlimited feeding, and the, the fish survive because the, the slower and weaker members of the shoal are consumed. See? And the lateral line is not alarmed. The fish is not alarmed by the presence of the plesiosaur, like I said, because the thinks it's just another member. You know, oh, that's just Harry behind me. Oh, no, Harry, what happened? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, so this made perfect sense. So to test the theory, we got the closest thing, you know, footage of the closest thing that we could find, which would be a snake neck turtle. And snake neck turtles are almost like plesiosaurs. They have a long neck and head and then the turtle body and the, 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 the you know, webbed feet, et cetera. And then we get the footage and we see like the turtle coming up behind these fish. And when it comes up behind the fish and its head is approximately the size of the fish, the fish are not alarmed. They don't notice the turtle's approach. They don't run and it grabs one, like no problem, okay? On the other hand, if the turtle is coming straight at the fish and they can see it with their eyes, they run for their lives. And if the fish were tiny, where the turtle's head was preternaturally large compared to them, so almost like a shark coming at a mackerel or something like that, then even with their backs turned, the lateral line still warned them of the approaching turtle and they were able to flee and evade it. So the theory was basically proven by using the snake neck turtle this way. And, you know, I, I, this theory, my theory must be spot on because a group of paleontologists from Germany, uh, Sander et al., actually uh, featured remarkably similar stuff in, in their paper about it. You know, like the same type of stuff I explained about it, following the school and, you know, feeding on the, the fish from the back of the school and not being detected because of the head being the same size and all this stuff. So I'm very flattered that my stuff's getting out there more into the mainstream and being accepted by actual paleontologists. It must be inspired by my work. Know what I mean? Well, who wouldn't be? Well, thank you. <laughs> but I, no, I, no, I, I, I really did enjoy uh, monsters and marine mysteries, and you know, you. we have other unique cases to get to, but I, I am sure everyone's familiar with, you know, the captain's logs, not Captain Kirk's, but, you know, you get all these records, you know, documentation of, you know, the uh, glowing objects 
going through the Caribbean oceans, uh, you know, from Columbus, uh, you know, Blackbeard and mermaids and um, Captain Blonde. You know, there's a lot of, you know, these famous uh, captains' uh, journals that, uh, you know, really revealed uh, um, some really interesting sightings that puzzle us today until you came along and uh, resolved everything that was uh, documented from the 18th century that seemed to be like some kind of anomaly. But when you interview uh, someone like Earl and his... um, uh, leather uh, back turtle story. Uh, mm. Some of the other people, uh, the Carnival Cruise Monster uh, witness, uh, are a lot of these um, people uh, credible when you talk to them? Are, is there the same credibility as you know, uh, name any of the 18th century, 17th to 18th century uh, captains who uh, noted so, some type of anomaly? But it, is there a, a consistency with – I'm taking this pretty seriously. I, I – I'm pretty good at uh, detecting hoaxes. Um, you know, my, I have a, what you call a bullshit detector, let's say. And I'll give you an example. I was approached by a gentleman from the Philippines. And it was a few years back. And uh, there had been uh, some photos making around, a couple of them, of this, uh, what looked like some sort of big reptilian-like carcass that had come ashore, um, drifted into the shallows or whatever in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's all this conversation on social media and such, you know, what is this thing and blah, 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 all sort of stuff. And eventually, like, uh, some marine biologist stepped in and she said it, to her she felt it was a gray whale and that it was rotting. And so, the you know, the, the flesh was, like, melting and deteriorating or whatever and moved around. It just looked really bizarre, okay? Um, but I was a uh, – this guy approached me. And he had this fantastical story. Um, he said that this carcass came ashore right outside his house. Like his house was right off the beach. And he came out in the morning, and he was the first person on site before anybody else. And he claimed that uh, he put on scuba gear, which he had, and he went out and he swam around it. And, what? and he claimed that it had teeth in its jaws, upper and lower. I have it all in, in Facebook and Messenger because it was a Facebook Messenger conversation. Okay, and mm-hmm. that it had four flippers, but one was missing. It had been torn off or bitten off. Um, it was, you know, heavily deteriorated. It had le- uh, leathery but scaly skin, little scales on it when you got up close, um, and a few other things. 
And then he told me that uh, the military had come, don't they always, men in black, stuff, whatever, and that they had dragged the carcass ashore with a rope, and that once it was on shore, it broke apart because it was so rotted, which made sense to me at this point. And then they used backhoes and all this stuff to scoop up the, the carcass and uh, deposit it on a flatbed, and then they left with it, supposedly to some research facility, et cetera. That was the last he heard from it. And he was telling me how he was going to go to the beach where this had taken place, and he was going to uh, – I asked him because I, I wanted DNA. Okay, I was still believing his story at this point. And, um, you know, I wanted to prove it. I said, is there a, a, some teeth, some skin, some fragments, whatever and stuff? And he was like, he went back. He said, no, he couldn't find anything. I find it a little hard to believe. Okay? That's, uh, you know, I mean, the things, I don't say blood, but tissues, the stuff melting would have soaked into the sand. Unless they scooped up the sand several feet deep to go with it, there should have been something. But anyway, so that was the story, and that was his fantastic claim. Unfortunately for him, as this was being told to me over the next day, um, someone else from the Philippines sent me a slew of photographs of this carcass, which I haven't, um, you know, posted or anything like that. I couldn't use them in the book because I didn't have the person's contact information anymore and, you know, there's copyright issues. I could probably put them on social media under fair use for educational purposes, and I probably will. But there was, I have several dozen photos of this carcass. And the thing that was interesting is, is that there is footage of them or stills of them, let's say, a bunch of fishermen and stuff, putting a rope around the carcass out, you know, I'd say, gosh, a thousand feet from the island, nearest island, and uh, eventually dragging it out to sea. So, uh, you know, his story obviously was Boulder Dash, okay? And uh, the photos are interesting because I'm looking at it, and you can see what is obviously a closed eye, and then ahead of that, is a nostril and uh you know some some crypto guy was claiming that oh it's a sperm whale you can see the uh lower jaw the mandible with the socket or the teeth were and i'm looking at these photos and this what he's claiming is a mandible is a piece of trash like a plastic hard plastic strip with holes in it that's sort of sticking out the front of the carcass you know like like flotsam that gets stuck to it it's not even bone it's plastic or something like that or aluminum siding i don't know what you know but uh so there's always somebody out there that thinks they know everything but anyway and but when i looked at it and i was remembering what this this woman said about it being a gray whale that didn't jive because the eye is so big compared to the rest of the skull and the distance from the eye to the this nostril or blowhole whatever it is and such um is like, like if you compare a gray whale, and I, I chart these things out, it's just anatomically impossible. I don't care how much this thing's face shifts and melts from rotting, et cetera. You know, the distance from the blowhole to the, to the eye can't change that much, let alone the eye quintupling in size. It just, that doesn't happen. Eyes don't grow if you're dead, okay? So I, it's definitely not a gray whale, in my opinion. And it's very curious uh, what it could be. 
And I know of some cetacean expert who's, you know, willing to accept the challenge and look at this thing and try and confirm one way or the other what it is. Now, maybe some kind of whale. It's, it's sizable. The head is big. The head looks like it's about 10 feet long, I guess. But the head does kind of look a little reptilian, you know. It has, like, this blackish skin where it's not rotted away. It's kind of shiny, which does match uh, the witness's description of the skin on the Carnival Cruise Monster. But, you know, you know, the odds are it's some sort of whale carcass, but it doesn't look like what you know, people have dismissed it as, although they may have dismissed it just based on the limited photos they had and not the stuff that I've been sitting on. But back to the hoaxer, the point is, so I got this guy on there, and I said to him, yeah, I, uh, I really appreciate your time and, the, the, you know, all the details about this, you know, your encounter with this thing is really incredible. You know, I just wish I could have gotten you some, you know, whatever, some, some evidence and stuff. I said, yeah, and what do you think about this photo or this one? I sent him a couple of them. I'm like, you know, it's really strange. You were the first person on the scene, and the carcass was right there, practically beached, you said. And, and then they, you guys tied a rope about it, the military did, and they dragged it ashore and it broke apart. But I'm showing these guys that are got this rope around this thing, and I've got stills of them towing it out to sea. I'm a little confused. Can you explain to me how this happened? He said, where did you get these photos from? Like this episode, I'm like, yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, so everybody wants their 15 minutes of fame and blah, 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 blah. Hoaxers, 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 okay? That's why we have, like, you know, like the Loch Ness Monster growing crab feeders, supposed fangs and stuff like that, okay? It's all BS. You know, I, I don't work like that, okay? But, you know, when I interviewed the guy that saw the Carnival Cruise Monster, I put him through the ringer. I mean, literally, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, and I tried to play mental chess with him and, um, like, to trip him up, you know, like, there's a lot of conversations we had that aren't in the book and stuff, and I would rehash stuff and this and see the story change or anything like that, you know, and I never encountered anything that made me sense that he wasn't telling the truth. We had phone conversations also, Skype conversations, et cetera, and he was just really, like, like when, when he talked about the size and strength, the power of this thing, He's from England, so I'm going to do, try and do his voice. He's like, oh, my God, Mike, this thing was the biggest thing you ever saw. I mean, like, super predator, forget it. This thing, a nine-foot shark, wouldn't even fill it up. You understand what I'm saying? When it surfaced, it was like a submarine. I mean, like, his back was so big, water was pouring off it, just like you see when it subsurfaces. Gigantic. You know, and that's it was stuff. So, you know, he, he was... Very, I mean, like excited when he was he'd speak about it. Like he could still see it in his mind. So I'm, you know, I mean, I'm not impossible to fool, but I'm pretty confident that he saw what he saw, you know. And it's been several years, and I've periodically speak with him, and nothing. He's never slipped up. Nothing ever. You know, people always make mistakes when they tell lies. You know, they forget some details. They they change their story. They, you know, tweak things. Whatever. It's never happened. So anything's possible, but I think he's telling the truth. Okay. Well, I, I was surprised. Really you, like, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like, you know, this thing, oh, he was bloody huge. Oh, my God. Yeah. Bigger than a whale. And he'd seen all the whales. You know? No. Uh, right. Uh, I was impressed with your impersonation of him. And I... I it, you have to be, uh, uh, you know, discriminating about, uh, 
you know, the information, you know, you just can't just publish uh, anything just because, you know, they say, well, I saw it. Well, right. I mean, that's I mean, and I've, I've had, I've had people try and hoax me before. I mean, it happens a lot. Yeah. You know, some guy was supposed to be a guest on my show that we used to do and stuff. And he was claiming he saw this gigantic turtle and all this stuff. And his story was really fishy and all. And of course, the last minute he backed out of, you know, appearing on the show. You know, I would I would have pinned him down live on the air and gotten to the bottom of it. So, so you know, but I mean, you know, everybody, uh, you see these hoaxes all the time. It happens, you know, Bigfoot, and it's like some guy wearing like a sleeping bag running around the distance with these grainy photos <laughs> and you can't see anything. I mean, seriously, uh-huh. it's embarrassing some of them. And this doesn't mean that Sasquatch doesn't exist or is real. You know, some of these people just want to have their little fame and laugh and say, oh, I trolled the world and I tricked all these people. Look, I got like 50,000 likes and stuff of this photo of, of, of me wearing a snowmobile suit and, and you know, with, with a blurry setting or something like that, you know. Yep. But, or, or there are people that just want to make people think that Bigfoot is just BS so that it sways the public from really believing in the creature. It, it's their only video on their YouTube channel and... You know, it's you know there 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 are those types out there. Um, I've had to deal with the people suffering from severe cases of pareidolia. But um, things that other samples you have in monsters and marine mysteries that um, <clears throat> aren't hoaxes. Uh, because you have uh, still uh, um, uh, frames of a video, um, and it's uh, <clears throat> another creature that uh, you may have only referenced uh, just briefly, but... Um, it seems like a manatee was pulled under mm-hmm. oh, the, the Sanibel Island. The Santa, Sanibel Sea Beast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay, so we just heard that, okay, you have have to deal with some of the those types who are looking for attention, but, okay, we have a real video uh, tape mm-hmm. of th- this. Let, let's talk a uh, uh, little bit about the Sanibel uh, uh, mo- movie that you analyze in your book. Let's get into another type of sea monster. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk about that one or you want to talk about something else? No, uh, uh, that one. Uh, yeah, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I was, uh, so uh, I don't have the thing in front of me. Um, the date, I think it was around 2012 or 2013, if memory serves. But this uh, this couple, uh, they were engaged, I think, at the time. Um, they were out. Uh, they had a rented boat off Santa Island, Florida. And they were uh, cruising along, and they saw a bunch of manatees. And the... The girl, she was videotaping them while her uh, fiancé was handling the boat and all, and they uh, turned the engine off to not speak to manatees. 
and then according to them, the uh, something very large passed under their boat at high speed. And they said it was the size of a bus, but not that thick, to uh, David Carlin, basically now the husband, they're a married couple. And uh, he said it was probably about four feet thick, but passed under their boat. And when it got close to the manatees, something shot, shot out of it, like a telephone pole, wrapped around a manatee and dragged it under. Um, that's basically the, the, the short version of the story. And so the, if you look at the video, oh, and then the, his, his girlfriend got, was terrified. You could hear in the video. She was like, like freaking out. She wanted to get the heck out of there and stuff. Um, and she, uh, rightfully so. Um, so the question was, was that really what happened? Does the video show that or not? And what is this thing if it's true? Okay. So interesting thing is, is that the video quality is pretty crappy. And David had told me during our interview that uh, he didn't know why, but his original video was in HD. And then when they gave it to someone to upload it to YouTube, the quality went downhill. He had no explanation for why that had happened. But, uh, and what I, what I found um, interesting was I wanted to see what this was. And I, I encourage anybody, you look up uh, Sanadel Sea Serpent or something like that, any of your listeners, um, on YouTube, you'll find the video right away, and there's websites and stuff for it. And when you see this sudden splash, you know, at first, like, most people, like, oh, it's just a manatee rolling and stuff like that. But if you look, something seems off. And you kind of see, like, it seems like the manatee, something does curl over it, and then it gets straight under, like that. And as it gets pulled under, you see its flipper, its tail, appear on the left, like it's flailing, it looks like, it's yanked under. And then a second or two later, the head pops up on the right, which is where the head would be if, you know, so I was trying to get air or something, and then it's pulled under and doesn't come back, okay? So there's an air breather, obviously, something grabbed you and dragged you under, you'd be gasping for air, you'd be trying to get catch your breath while you were trying to free yourself. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm looking at this, and I'm trying to figure out what exactly this is. Is this really not just a manatee? Is it just, you know, they thought it was some sort of immense snake, you know, and the uh, dark on the top, light underneath, I think was a description, et cetera. And so as I was going through the frames, you know, I was doing the same thing that I, I started doing with um, with the Gary LaMotta footage. You know, I was taking the frames one by one, and I would click enhance on my computer, and that would make things pop better. And as I did this, I started seeing these, it really stands out in color. I mean, in the book, it's black and white. I started seeing um, what in film is called fogging um, on a bunch of frames. And fogging is... Uh, the easiest way to explain it would be like if you see somebody who's testifying against a, I don't know, a mafia guy and he's speaking and they have his face blocked out with like pixels and they probably okay, destroy yep. his voice also. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's fogging. If, if you shoot a video and there's people in the background and they won't give you permission to use their image, you know, you fog your faces, et cetera. Okay. And so there was a, there, this was done. And I kept looking at it, and it was in a bunch of frames. There, it's all in the book. I, I did a frame by frame by frame to show it. You can see it's like a square that's fogged, okay, like pixels 
broken down, okay? And in several frames, there's several fogging boxes, okay? And it's so strange because, you know, like, like uh, Dave's wife, like uh, I had spoken to her, and she said they, they didn't do anything in the video, and I don't think they did, but I think somebody might have. Because first off, he already told me that the video lost quality before it came up. And in addition to that, you've got this weirdness going on. And this fogging tends to, seems to block all the frames where the juicy parts would be visible. Like if, if this was something wrapped around its manatee, the spots we need to see that we could kind of figure out what it was is obscured. I, I find that to be a remarkable coincidence. Now, I don't want to sound like a, quote, conspiracy theorist and all that stuff, but it's there. I mean, uh, you know, the, the frames aren't lying or anything like that. They don't look, come out normally, but when you enhance them, it separates the layers and it pops out at you then. So it's been done. And whoever did it, in my opinion, okay, was really good at it. Like it was a professional job of obscuring these six or ten frames or whatever it was. Okay. And... So I was looking at this, and based on my interview with Dave and what he saw and all this other stuff, um, the like you try to figure out what this could be. The fact that he said mm -hmm. it was the size of a bus and it was four feet thick made me think, okay, it's not a snake because a four foot snake would be insanely big. I mean, think about it; it would have to be. 100, 200 feet long, I'm just guessing, depending on species, you know, if its body was four feet thick, um, it has to be something else. And it says, they also describe something shooting out of it. And so that sounded to me like, like a cephalopod, a cuttlefish, an octopus, or possibly the most likely candidate, a squid of some kind. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, if you had a giant squid, an Argotuthis or something else, another species, and the its body was four feet thick. Picture from the ground to four feet thick. A picture of squid lying of it that thick. That is a ginormous squid. And forty feet in length would probably jive with that. So and squid have a lot of them, including Arctuthis, have retractable feeding tentacles. So squid actually have eight appendages, I mean ten appendages. Eight of them are what they call the arms. These are the shorter ones that protrude down under the mantle, and they use those for manipulating and holding prey and, you know, pushing it toward their beak and stuff, okay? And then they have, depending on species, okay, they, they, some of them also have these two elongated feeding tentacles. And in the case of fish like, like cuttlefish do this, some other squids do this, Architutus has this, where these tentacles are kept retracted in there, and when the, it sort of comes within range of a prey item, they kind of Velcro together, like they're, they have these special suckers on them that let them hold together, and they launch out like a jab from a box or something like that, like out, and then at the end of it, they have what they call clubs, like it's kind of like a palm-shaped end of the tentacle, which has often suckers that have like teeth in them, like either on the edges or in, depending on the, with the colossal squid, actual whole curved hooks, etc. And this mechanism, the, these these feeding clubs at the end of the tentacles, as it impacts on the target, open like a mouth, and it snaps onto the prey item and latches onto it, and then pulls it toward the squid, where its arms entangle it up, completely immobilizing it, and then the squid starts to systematically eat it alive with its beak, ripping chunks out and grinding them up with its tongue and swallowing it pieces. 
that's how it works, okay? And that seems to make the most sense in terms of, you know, if we're not looking at a manatee rolling, and it doesn't appear that we are, okay, then I would think some sort of large cephalopod, like a cuttlefish or a squid, was feeding on manatees. And the 40-foot the length was the overall mass of the cephalopod passing underneath the Carlin's boat. And what shot out of it that they said described as being like the size of a telephone pole were the actual feeding tentacles launching toward the manatee. It grabs it, it wraps around it, it pulls it under, and it begins to consume it. Okay? So that's my theory on it. Okay. So uh, what telephone pole size tentacles, uh, that's pretty large. It doesn't look like it would be, you can see the shoreline. Um, mm-hmm. It's a yeah, island. Seems like, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, it seems like a pretty large predator uh, close to shore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, the water depth is in the book. I don't know off the top of my head. I think it might have been like 20 feet. I'm, I'm just guessing 24 feet. I'm, I'm, you, you probably know better than me because you have it in front of you. But, uh, you know, it's like, like I mentioned this, like I've seen like past, like, like studies people have done where they, in Hawaii, where they claimed that, that they, they spotted giant octopuses, like commonly. And the appearance of the octopuses seems to coincide with the migration of the nesting of the green sea turtle. And green turtles, the, uh, you know, they're big at the size and all that's in the book, the 600 pound turtle relatively slow moving, especially if it's coming in to lay eggs or is tired and just laid eggs. You know, it would make sense that a, a predator like that would want some sort of large, meaty meal that it could easily catch and overpower. And an octopus's beak is perfectly capable of shearing through the plastron, that's the underbelly of a turtle, with no problem. That beak can sniff through steel wire, for God's sake. And, you know, a perfect meal. So if you think about it, if you had something like that all around Sanibel Island, that region, then a manatee is just as good, if not better. I mean, they're big and, and slow and blubbery and pretty much defenseless, you know? And you don't have good fangs to defend themselves and claws and stuff. It's just like a big, fat sausage swimming around. And if you're an opportunistic predator, you learn from past experience, oh, this is where I'm going to get a nice, easy meal, you know, it makes sense that it might go to and do that. So, okay. And, uh, and, I would know uh, some I, of these waters. You do note it's 16 to 24 feet deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, pretty, pretty scary. Yeah, it's, um, Get stuff way out. Yeah, you, know, you have these creatures way out to sea and near the shoreline too. Well, the interesting thing about the Sanibel one is is that like a year later or something around that same time, um, sorry, that uh, there was somebody else who saw a gigantic octopus right there, like not a few miles away offshore from a fishing boat. It's in the book, too. But, uh, and he told me that when they called it in, like, they were on, a, they had, like, a 55-foot, I believe it was, like, charter fishing boat, 
and they were like drifting along using what he described as disgustingly smelling bait, like, you know, to catch fish and stuff. And apparently mm-hmm. that attracted this thing. And then all of a sudden, 30 feet of a tentacle comes up on the surface of the water, swims toward them, squirms towards them, and it starts like touching the side of the boat. And as I explained to Demetrius, was his name, him and his multiple friends of his all saw this thing. And they said that it was like a reddish brown color, kind of smooth, um, and it, it was up to three feet thick. And they only saw 30 feet of it. And then they could see it going beneath the surface. There was more of the tentacle. They saw other tentacles under there and some sort of body shape. And they estimated that the animal was like 80 or even 90 feet, including its tentacles. They, they, they saw the outline and stuff under the boat, beside the boat. But uh, and he thought mm-hmm. he was just being curious. You know, that's what he said. And I explained to him that octopuses or octopi, whichever you prefer, um, have chemoreceptors in their suckers, which is a case buds. And so when it was touching the boat, it was trying to determine if the boat was a living thing or not. You know, it smelled like mm-hmm. this nasty, fishy oil and blood and stuff like that, you know. And then it realized it was metal or fiberglass, whatever the boat was made out of. And then it withdrew and it went on its merry way. If it, it might have been checking to see if it was a whale, in which case it might have lashed, you know, around it and stuff and tried to drag it under. So. Yeah, and, and that's the one where uh, you, you, your case study where they saw like a garbage can lid eyeball looking. Uh, this was like no, no, that's not the same. No, that was that was the Starkey Squid incident um, um, during World War II in the Admiral Patroller. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and that one was just uh, an amazing uh, story. The it, it just just you're looking down at and you uh, into the water and you see this huge eyeball looking back up at you. Um, I think one one of the nice uh, parts of your book is you're covering uh, all kinds of these creatures that are out there. Um, They're still there. Be careful Mm -hmm. at at the beach. But, uh, yeah, it's an amazing universe underwater, too. Well, the Stargy incident um, was – oh, I'm sorry. There was one other thing about the Sandoval thing about the octopus that the Demetrius friend saw, and that was uh, – I, I forgot to mention this – is that it's in the book that they called it in, the harbor master or whatever it was and stuff, and said, listen, we, we had a gigantic octopus or something stick its tentacle off and, you know, it's like exploring our boat and all this stuff like that. And um, the guy was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know. It's been here for a few days already, something like that. And – you know, like, 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 well, thanks for warning us. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you wouldn't want to fall in the water with that thing. I mean, for God's sake, you might be so right. person, eh? nor there, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, no way out to eat, but this is, you know. But uh, the Starkey thing was intriguing to me because this story takes place during World War II in the Maldives, if memory serves. And uh, this guy's up on deck, night watch and stuff, and they have submarine lights underwater there mm-hmm. and uh, this is like lights that are on the sides of the ship and stuff on the hull 
and they're designed to create the illusion to break up the ship's profile and make it look like something other than it is by trying to make it blend with the like the horizon that type of thing. That was like a technology they used back then. But squid are you know responded bioluminescence when they first got actual footage of a live giant squid attracted the bait. They used a special like a uh, color emitting like a Medusa thing, whatever they call it, their Gorgon uh, light show underwater to draw it in. Because squid communicate by flashing and colors and things of that nature. And so these Admiralty Trawler, those lights may have drawn this creature, unless Starky was Stark, or even me, I get it, Starky, Stark, pretty mm-hmm. uh, But anyway, um, but he said he was up on deck smoking a cigarette or something, and he looked over the side, and he saw this glowing green um, orb, like the size of a trash can lid, like just underwater there. And he was looking, and he's like, what am I looking at here? And then eventually he realized to his shock and horror that it was an eye. And then he stepped back a little bit, he realized the eye was part of a squid, a gigantic, impossibly large squid. And he was backing away from it in fear, and he realized that it was lying next to the boat. And they were just, I think, drifting at this point. And he realized it went from one end of the trawler to the other, which was over 175 feet. So uh, it, it sounds impossible, but that's what you know, he reported. And then he said all of a sudden the squid's body kind of like swelled up, which was in it sucking in water into its mantle and what. And then it just oh, silently just sped away underwater with nary a ripple. Okay. With, with a story like that, um, mm-hmm. it, the squid attacking the Nautilus at 20,000 leagues mm-hmm. under the sea um, really isn't make uh, make believe fiction. So, you know, there's. Well, there's a, I don't know. in the book. There's. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I, I was just gonna say. I, you know, I don't know. Jules Verne uh, had an encounter like that when he he was out on the ocean. But you know, since we had been talking a little bit about. Some of the uh, old uh, captains' journals. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, he, he may, I'm sure he he was very. You know, he's a pretty smart guy. He did a lot of reading, and uh, uh, he, he may have come across something like that. That you know, you're verifying that it, it may uh, uh, be very um, uh, realistic to put in a you know one of the grandfather of sci-fi books. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, I'm not sure because the, the Pearl incident, which was when a schooner was attacked and sunk by a squid that was even bigger than it, um, is, in, is in Monsters and Marine Mysteries. Um, and I don't know if that took place before he wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or not, um, but if it did, and it quite may well have, that may have inspired him for you know, that part of his book. You know, you know, you know what I'm saying, but uh, I don't know. You know, who knows? Yeah. I don't know everything. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, uh, Max, we're down to about three minutes left. Um, yeah, do you want to uh, plug your websites and Facebook pages, uh, get uh, people uh, to know where, how to get a hold of you? And, you know, I do want to thank you for 
a very educational evening. This is what Nightlight's all about. And well, I do tend to go up on my tangents and whatnot. But thank you. Um, sure. If anybody, uh, well, first off, all the books, the Cronus Rising series, Diablo, all that stuff, is available through Amazon, through Barnes and Noble. Uh, there's Kindles. There's full-size soft covers. I think Barnes and Noble still has some hard covers. Uh, Monsters and Marine Mysteries is also available through them. Uh, I'm very proud. The book was my first number one bestseller, which is surprising considering all the novels I've written. But uh, I guess people said they liked the fact that the stories were told in an exciting way, you know, by a storyteller instead of being more methodical and preachy and what. You know, you try and make it exciting for people. Nobody wants to read boredom. But um, so you can go on my website, too. Hmm? It's a really good book. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. The the website, if people want to go on my site, it's either cronusrising.com, which you mentioned, or maxhawthorne.com. And there are free book downloads, excerpts on there, et cetera. Um, a lot of the books, I think if you have like Amazon's Kindle Unlimited program, you can actually read the Kindle verses for free, which a lot of people love and take advantage of. Um, so that's always welcome. And uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with me personally on Facebook, I'm a Max Hawthorne author, if I'm not mistaken. Same thing on Instagram. I have no idea what my Twitter one is, but I'm sure it's, it's something similar. Um, and uh, I have a couple groups. There's the main Cronus Rising fan page, which is uh, like Max Holdren's Cronus Rising novel series or something like that. And uh, I don't you know, manage it, to be honest, but uh, I think, I'm pretty sure if you look up that up, you'll find it. And there is one group that I personally handle, which is uh, Max Holdren's Monsters and Marine Mysteries, hence the name of the book. And that uh, you know, we have a lot of great members. They post all sorts of sightings and things they've seen and intriguing uh, mm-hmm. aquatic critters and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's a nice, yep. nice group. We keep it clean. We don't uh, allow foul language in there or bullying or anything like that. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. they're, they're great, honestly. I, I have yep. some really fantastic good. readers. Yeah, uh, good, good group of people. Um, yeah, so you know, we're down to uh, under a minute, and you know, thanks again. Uh, you're always welcome back to uh, discuss the lizard by the pond and your walk with Caesar in the cemetery. So you know, we'll let's save those for next time. But th- sure. thanks again, and you know, we have some great shows. Uh, you know, the 21st century shows. Uh, lined up tomorrow, Thursday, and Friday. So uh, I'll see everyone next uh, Tuesday with uh, Dan and Teresa Duke. And thanks, Barbara. Thank you, Max, and have a great night.